Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Fiction. Science fiction. Horror. Fantasy. Crime. LGBT. Thriller. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale, starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. 
For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Now entered the house of mystery. With your hosts, Eric Shapiro. David North Martino, John Copenhaver, and Al Warren. One hundred two point three FM Riverside and one hundred five AM Palm Springs. Welcome back into the house of mystery. I'm Al Warren, Mister Joe Goldberg. Is back from smoking cheese. <laughs> Smoked that. We did the smoking cheese bit already. That was, that I know, was in the previous one. No, but this is important. It's it's, important. It, well, How Joe can, smokes his cheese. Smoke my. Don't let it melt. That's rule number one. All right. And you're Get still in winter. Smoke. You're still in winter. It's hot. We actually had sunshine in the Chicago area today. It was beautiful. It was actually blue skies and a neat, and yard work is calling and beckoning. So mm-hmm. I'll stay inside and write for a while. Yeah, that's your excuse to get out of yeah, the... Yeah, I can't mow that lawn. I need to write a thousand words. Yeah, and then It'll wait. You'll, be, you'll be eating or something. I can't help it. Well, yeah. here we go. We continue with the thriller thriller week, and we've got a, a great, great writer. He's been around, done a lot of work. So, Mr. Jack Carr, thank you for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Excited to talk to you guys. And I want to get back to this smoking cheese business. Do you... Yep. You, you buy the cheese and then you smoke it, or are you making the cheese yourself and yep. smoking it? I, I uh, buy chunks of it at Costco on a big, huge Gouda or Swiss or cheddar chunks and slice them up in, in decent thirds normally. And then I cold smoke them. You put a tube in. You don't turn the smoker on. You just get a tube with some pellets in it and let it go and smoke it for a couple hours, flip it around, and use, use apple or cherry or something like that. And then shrink wrap, vacuum seal it, and let it sit in the fridge for... More than a week, because if you eat that cheese right off the smoker, you're gonna die. It's, it's all the oils have gone to the top. It's, it's awful. But let it set, and then get smoked. It's great gifts. It's great holiday gifts. People, people want homemade cheese. I've had people say, "Oh, you should sell that." Health department might come and get me, but uh, it's, <laughs> probably. I've violated yeah. laws. I'm sure. Yes, yes. And I think I hear people who do, but they rent out uh, kitchens. Yeah. But my kitchen's the smokers outside there. It's so, yeah, it's a fun time. Yeah. It, it's it's one of those rare things. Love it, love it. Or or a brisket, making me hungry. Or whatever you can do. Yeah. Well, what does Jack do then? Jack doesn't smoke cheese, so what no, I don't smoke do? cheese. But I do. Uh, I love um, cooking over fire. So it's not necessarily a smoker. Uh, I don't really consider the 
the pellet smokers, real smokers, because you just turn them on, yeah. walk away and come back and monitor it on your phone, that sort of thing. I like to set it and forget yeah, it. Set it and forget it. Nice. That's convenient. <laughs> but uh, I had this birch barrel where you're cooking on fire. So you can do Argentinian style also by raising the grill up above it. You can regulate heat that way. You can open up the top a little bit, let the smoke go through, or come up and, and, and swirl around. So uh, it has some options there, but you have to be on it. You can't set it and walk away, which is one of the uh, uh, benefits, especially for those out there with children and, and wives and all the rest of it. You've got to be outside. You have to be outside with your whiskey, paying attention. Otherwise, things are going to gonna burn and go sideways very quickly. So so I do that, but um, I'd like to get a few different types of, uh, of smokers as well. Um, it's nice to have a gas grill you just plug in and, and can turn on on a cold night and you're not going to go out there and... But I do like the old school Weber's with the you know old coal, just like uh, old charcoal, just like my dad would use in the 70s. And uh, so I love that kind of smell, kind of nostalgic a little bit. And then uh, the big chunks that I use in the birch barrel. Uh, so I like to have a few things out there as options. Yeah, well, I had the uh, charcoal big Weber smoker. And the reason I have a pellet smoker is that I always had a little problem setting the lid on that thing. So I was done smoking and set it and had delicious cherry glazed chickens. Wife and I went out, have a glass of wine, got a phone call. Your house is on fire. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, mm-hmm. got us. Yeah, I thought it was set. I, I, everything was on. I, I had this entire system not to burn my house down. If everything was totally contained, except somehow the wind got a thing out and it got a, a spark, and I burnt a lot of my house. Really? Oh, and so I've gone to pet. Yeah. Oh my goodness. That's the worst call you could ever get. Oh, your house is on fire, and you get to your block, and you can walk to your house on top of the fire trucks. They are now lining all sides of the street. So oh. there's not a lot of flame going around our house for a while. I have PTSD on that. Every time I do hear a fire truck, I have a little heart palpitations. They don't go towards my house. Oh yeah, I think the pellets are much uh, safer in that respect. There's a American-made uh, pellet company. They do both, but uh, it's called Yoder Smokers. I'm looking into those right now. I'd like to get one of those because it's uh, made in America and they look right. solid as well. So I'd like to add one of those to the arsenal. Do it. Do you kill your own your, your own meat? <laughs> I do. I, for a while, we only ate wild game. Um, and then uh, more recently, uh, companies have been sending things, uh, like uh, ranches have been sending things that have online um, businesses where they're selling you know, their, you know, different cuts of meat that are that's, uh, you can follow them on social channels and kind of see where, where they are and what their background is and how they, uh, how they care for the land and just kind of be a part of it. So I get a lot of stake like that now these days. But we still have a few freezers full of uh, of moose and elk and mule deer and uh, axis deer and turkey and a lot of things like that. But uh, yeah, I got a freezer full of Costco. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, Costco's not bad. Costco has some great, actually, great cuts of cuts of meat at Costco. But uh, yeah, mostly wild game, but supplemented by some these uh, steaks that people send. How about you, Al? You you you, you killed anything lately? You stuck it in the freezer? No, no, I've been too busy to kill anything. A couple of books, but no. You write true crime kill books. <laughs> Come on, that's humans. I'm in, okay. I'm in prison <laughs> talking to killers. Like, this isn't, you know, a lot. so let someone else do the killing for me. Outsource. Okay. Outsource. Yeah, that's why. It's economical. Hey, so so what what goes on in the day of the life of Jack Carr? Like, I could, I could just see, because I have an idea that, uh, you know, you know big time number one seller, New York Times, you got series out you got all this stuff going on so 
but what's it really like to be Jack Carr? Like, what, what's your day look like? They're all very busy. Uh, they go very late. They start very early. Um, they're not all the same. Obviously, right now I'm in a uh, gear up towards book launch. So at the time we're recording this, there's about two weeks until I go on the road for book tour. Um, so that means a lot of uh, a lot of interviews, uh, those five-minute ones, 10-minute ones, maybe 15 on, on AM radio, the longer-form podcasts, my own podcast, uh, uh, television, whatever it is. I'm going to go day by day on that. But uh, usually, uh, I should say usually because every day is, is different. So I have the podcast. I have my book number seven that I'll be working on. I have uh, this nonfiction work on the 1983 Beirut barracks bombing. That's about a year and a half out uh, right now. But every day is busy. That's the one common thread. And I have a, a wife and three kids. Our middle child has really severe special needs. He needs uh, full-time, 24-7 care forever. Um, sweet guy. He's 15 now. But uh, that that's kind of my mission in life is making sure he has a lifetime of full-time care, which is probably why I'm so, uh, uh, I guess, devoted to just working a lot. Um, and and uh, he's bracketed by a 17-year-old on one side and then a 12-year-old on the other. So we're juggling kids. When I'm not juggling kids, I am working and somehow never taking a breath. But I hope to at some point. But now it's not that time. Um, and it's just, a, it's just busy. But I feel so fortunate because other than serve my country in uniform, um, this is what I wanted to do with my life. And I knew that serving um, as a, specifically as a SEAL had to go first. It just makes sense chronologically. So do that first and then write thrillers, the same kind that I was enjoying reading growing up. My mom's a librarian, so I grew up surrounded by books and a love of reading. And uh, I knew after the military that I would write these types of thrillers. And uh, and so so here we are. But I feel extremely fortunate. Learned a ton about screenwriting. I got to advise on all the scripts last year for the terminal list. I'm writing one of the scripts. Uh, the finale for the spinoff series that we're doing. Uh, and then that'll roll into my second novel, True Believer. So I'll write one of those as well. But uh, it's busy. It's busy, but I feel extremely fortunate. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's all part of it, right? When you're when you're doing it and doing it well and, and it, you don't really want to stop, right? You just want to keep going. Exactly. you got to capitalize on momentum. And a lot of this is exactly growing up, I think that, uh, you know, I can, as a writer, I can go live in a cabin in the mountains. I can write my novel. I send it to New York. Maybe I do an interview or two and then I get to work on the next novel. And then in the lead up to publication of my first book in 2018, I realized that was not the case, uh, unless you're an outlier. Today, you have to do a lot of the things that you were reliant upon your publishing house to do 20, 30, 40 years ago. Um, but a lot of these platforms didn't exist back in those days. So uh, now you can take more ownership of the, the the marketing side of the house. You can do podcasts. You can create your own podcast. You can engage with people on social media. You can add value to their lives throughout the year with blog posts or of these things that you're doing. Um, so you can take a lot more ownership as an author these days if you want to do that um, uh, than, than in the past. So that keeps me busy as well because I looked at it essentially the same way I looked at the battlefield, meaning uh, you want to capitalize on momentum, look for gaps in your enemy's defenses, adapt and faster than the enemy's adapting to you. Um, and then I just looked at publishing the same way. Uh, looked at that battle space and looked at ways I could capitalize on a little bit of momentum, how I could do things a little bit differently. Um, but I didn't come from a background where I could say, oh, in my last job at uh, Company X, this is what we did on social media. Uh, so I had none of that. Uh, I could just look at the battle space and figure out 
a good way to engage with an audience, a readership, uh, in an appropriate and thoughtful way that, uh, that adds value. So that, uh, that keeps me fairly busy. I guess. How, how did you know, uh, back then when you were on the battlefields, as you say, that you wanted to be a writer? And, and I have to add, is that a common thing with a lot of people out on the battlefield with you, people you fought with? I don't think so. And I never talked about it back then, but, um, growing up, uh, it was just in my blood, one to serve. Um, but I, I didn't have a touch point with, uh, anyone who was in the military. My grandfather was uh, killed in World War II. So obviously I did not know him, but he was killed off Okinawa in 1945, uh, which meant that my dad never knew him, uh, either. Uh, but I had pictures of him with his squadron. He was a Marine aviator. He flew the Corsair, which is the plane that had the gold wings that would fold up so you could fit him on the aircraft carrier. Uh, so I had photos of him and his squadron, him and with his plane. I had his medals. I had his Marine Corps aviation wings. Um, the silk maps that they used to give aviators back then, because if you had a paper map and you hit the water, uh, it would just disintegrate, but a silk map just got wet, but still worked. Um, and there was a show on television back then called Black Sheep Squadron, uh, starring Robert Conrad as Poppy Boynton. And so I watched that with my dad, and I have great memories watching that show and watching that and then watching other World War II films were really our connection to that generation, because you couldn't... Do, you can get on Facebook and try to find someone who served with your father or grandfather. Um, you, you didn't really have that back then. So that was our touch point. And I think that impacted me. Um, so I knew I was going to serve. It was in my blood, in my DNA. But I had that, um, uh, that connection to my grandfather through those things and through the medium of popular culture with that TV show and other movies. And then at the ripe old age of seven, I find out about Navy SEALs. And uh, I asked my dad a little bit about them, and it was through a movie called The Frogman, that old black and white film. And uh, I tried to, started to pester my dad with some questions, and, and uh, he said, go ask your mother. And my mom was a librarian, so we went down to the local library and did some research on SEALs, and this was the, the early 80s. So you uh, back then you could essentially find the end of the Internet, uh, which means that uh, you could get to the end of that shelf at the library that talked about SEALs or special operations. And back then it was typically stories about Vietnam in a magazine article, a chapter in a book, or even just a mention in a in a paragraph. But I remember walking away from that uh, with the takeaway that SEALs are some of the best special operators in the world, and the training is some of the toughest ever devised by a modern military. So I was in. Then fast forward a couple of years later, at uh, age 10, fifth grade, that's when I'm making my transition from reading young adult fiction to reading the same kind of things that my parents are reading. Uh, certainly by sixth grade, by age 11, I'm reading the same kind of books my parents are reading. So that means Tom Clancy, Nelson DeMille, uh, David Morrell, A.J. Quinnell, J.C. Pollock, Mark Olden, Stephen Hunter, Louis L'Amour, all these guys who had protagonists with backgrounds that I wanted to have in real life one day. So if you've read books uh, from the 80s, or people who are listening to this that didn't read books but watch television or movies, the background of your main character back then was typically something in Vietnam. So someone was either a Navy SEAL in Vietnam, Army Special Forces in Vietnam, Marine Corps sniper in Vietnam, CIA paramilitary in Vietnam, and now in the 80s, they were a private investigator. They were a stuntman. They were a cop, something like that. And that was kind of the typical background. So I figured, hey, guys like David Morrell and Nelson DeMille, they must have done some research 
So I'm reading these books and I'm learning about this future occupation in the military, but I'm falling in love with these stories. And what I was really doing, although I didn't think about it like this at the time, is I was giving myself an early education in the art of storytelling from these masters. And I made a decision back, I'd say fifth, sixth grade, that uh, one day I would write these same types of thrillers. Uh, in fact, in sixth grade, I read The Most Dangerous Game, a uh, short story by Richard Connell, written back in the early or 1920s. And I said, one day I'll write a thriller that pays tribute to this short story. And that was my third novel, Savage Son. So uh, I always knew that after my time in the military, I was going to write these same kind of thrillers. And then in 1988, I sat down with my mom and we watched a series of interviews that Bill Moyers did with um, uh, 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 Joseph, I'm losing my mind right now, uh, Here with a Thousand Faces, Joseph Campbell. Um, so we watched that called The Power of Myth um, and a series of books. I think it was three copy table books that came out based on those interviews. But for me, hearing the story that um, uh, Joseph Campbell's work influenced George Lucas with Star Wars was very intriguing. And then I think I watched or applied the hero's journey, that mythology to all the stories that I read, all the movies that I saw, all the television shows that I watched. I, I watched them through that lens. And so even to this day, I very intentionally use language that uh, even if someone doesn't recognize it, takes them back to that mythology, uh, going into, let's say, a, a cavern. And I'll use terms like cavernous or gloomy or dark for that part of the hero's journey. So um, so I always knew I was going to serve, and then I always knew I was going to write. And I feel extremely fortunate that my mom introduced me to reading at such an early age and uh, encouraged it by making it just a natural thing. Uh, sitting down to read was as natural as having dinner or anything else. It was just a natural part of my life that I absolutely loved and uh, knew after my time in the military that I would write. So I had a, I couldn't have, I can't envision a better background or a better foundation um, to do what I'm doing now than to have read and to come at it from the position of a fan of the genre. So I know the history um, just because I'm in love with that history and in love with the genre and uh, appreciate all those writers and authors who came before that uh, allowed me to do what I'm doing today. So I uh, feel extremely fortunate. Well, was James Reese born on your battlefield of your lives or did he come to you afterwards where you always had in the back of your head I, this could be a character this could be a character where was it in the writing life that you decided that you need to give James Reese a life um so he's a former along his journey that's what I did uh, and of course that's where the the similarity ends in uh in that he now becomes involved in this conspiracy and uh, goes down uh, this it gets thrown into this uh, uh, into this conspiracy that he has to uh, figure out uh, and then uh, go about dismantling um, but while I was in I wasn't uh, actively writing I just knew that one day I would write I kept reading just like I have been my entire life but I've also been a student of warfare so even from those early days I was reading any nonfiction I could find on terrorism, on special operations, on insurgencies, on counterinsurgencies, warfare in general, because I wanted to make myself the best operator and the best leader that I possibly could. So I have this academic study of warfare that's never stopped. Uh, of course, reading these thrillers, that's never stopped. And then the practical application on the battlefield uh, in Iraq and Afghanistan. So as I was getting out of the military, all those things came to a head at the right time and place for me to then uh, start writing. So um, when I write, 
Uh, and I didn't, this didn't come to me as I was writing my one page executive summary or my outline, but as soon as I sat down to write the first words, it became very apparent that this was going to be a much more personal writing experience than I anticipated at the outset. I always knew that I'd get the, the weapon things right. And if I didn't have, I, did, I couldn't remember or I didn't, I, I didn't quite know something. I had a bunch of people I could reach out to to ask to make sure that I had that, that stuff right. But, uh, the feelings and emotions behind what happens to the protagonist, that's what really hit me as becoming much more personal than I thought. Meaning, if my main character is ambushed on the streets of Los Angeles, I don't have to find someone who's been in ambush or imagine what it would be like, uh, or interview someone who has been in one and, and then take those answers and, uh, and filter them through other interviews I've done, movies I've seen, uh, documentaries I've watched. Uh, I can take what it was actually like to be in an ambush in Baghdad in 2006 and then apply that to a completely fictional narrative. So the feelings and emotions are coming from my heart and soul directly onto the page and there's no filter there at all. So, um, so they became much more personal than I thought at the outset, but as someone's reading it, I think this is what made it stand out to Simon and Schuster when they first read it, um, was, is, is that this, they, these feelings seem real and that's because they're all coming from a real place. I'm not making them up, uh, making the story up, but not the feelings and emotions. So I think that's resonated with, uh, well, resonated with my editor, Simon and & Schuster, and, uh, and also with readers. So, and it's very therapeutic at the same time. Well, let's stay with that because your, your other answers were talking about your families and the like. And I think, because I've read them all, of course, underneath the, the character, and in fact, it's kind of the first stories are, it's about family and relationships and bonds. Am I missing that theme? Or is that, that's kind of what I see all the way through all these books. Yes, that's very natural as well, um, because I have a family and I have a wife and kids. And uh, so I have that. And uh, and I did go downrange when my wife was left at home to deal with all the things that one has to deal with in real life. Because when we go downrange uh, in the military, especially in well, special operations is my only experience. So um, the people to your right and left are your best friends. Um, you're not worried about the leaky roof or changing a diaper or whatever else. Um, you are solely focused on the task at hand, solely focused on that mission. And that's how it has to be. The pendulum has to be on the side of the team because you're responsible as a leader for these lives. Lives. Uh, that's what you owe to to those guys, to their families, uh, ultimately to the team and the mission and the in the country. Um, but uh, but that is a theme for sure that uh, is very natural for me to write about, um, and is uh, is evident from reading all of the novels. Uh, that bond between uh, brothers, brotherhood, uh, families, multi generational. And, uh, and between someone who has to learn to live again and, uh, and has a relationship now with Katie in the, in the story and, um, and how that's uh, developing. But I think another thing that resonated with Simon and & Schuster and has resonated with readers is that my protagonist, James Reese, is on a journey. So he's not just the same person in the first book as he is in the second, third, or fourth. And it's not the same person that's just picked up and dropped into a new situation. He is learning. He's evolving. He's adapting. He's taking the lessons from past successes and failures and applying them to future problem sets as wisdom. And uh, that's one thing I think we all have in common, no matter where you come from in the world. Uh, we're all on a journey and we're all here for a finite amount of time. And we don't know when that journey is going to end. But that's the one thing that we all have in common. And James Reese is on that journey. He's on his journey. Um, so I think people recognize that and recognize that he's not just a carbon cutout character who's dropped into different scenarios. Uh, he's evolving as well with each of these stories. And for me, I love to I love to explore that because 
I'm on this uh, a similar journey. I'm not in his same predicaments, obviously, but uh, but I'm going through life as well as we all are. Hopefully, finding uh, f- finding our passion and our mission, and combining those to to into a purpose as we move forward um, to make hopefully uh, make the world a better place and those people around influence those people around us in a positive way. So, how do you make room for for your character James Reese, and and what kind of relationship do you have with him? yourself well I'm, I'm very closely connected because of those uh that that similar background um but there are other characters as well and the, a fan favorite character is uh rafe hastings uh who has a little bit different background his family has a little bit different background similarity in that they're multi-generational uh warriors but different background coming from a different place for Rhodesia to south africa to Montana, uh, so a little bit different uh, experience um, and I can differentiate those characters and the way they think talk, act, the different weapons that they use. I use different the weapons uh, as, uh, as character development tools because when I see someone in real life and see, oh, this person is carrying a, uh, a 1911-45 cocked and locked in a leather holster on a leather belt, uh, that tells me something about them. Or if I see somebody, uh, oh, nylon belt, kydex holster, striker fire pistol, that tells me something else about them. Um, and you can make judgments based on the types of things that people carry. So I use those tools as character development um, tools in my book. Um, but my, my relationship with my character, I would say, is a very close one. And I have such a great time writing him, particularly the scenes. Um, this one chapter in my last book, In the Blood, I think it's the it's my most favorite chapter that I've ever written. I think it's chapter three. And it's just a conversation. It's not a big action sequence, multi-chapter. It's just him talking to the matriarch of the Hastings family, Caroline Hastings. Um, and it's just a conversation. And I think it's uh, one of the more powerful chapters that I've ever written. And, uh, and it's, it remains my favorite, I think. So so when someone um, picks up the book, do, do you have, um, let's say, a subtext or some sort of a underlying theme or something you want people to take away from the book besides all of the action, adventure, and entertainment in the in the story? I don't start out that way. I start out with a theme. And I don't necessarily want anyone to take away a certain thing from the story. Um, I just want it to be uh, a story that adds value, that moves the genre forward, even if it's by a degree and is better than my last one. So each book, I start with a title and a theme because I don't want to be wasting any bandwidth thinking about the title as I'm typing away because that's bandwidth that's not going into making the story the best that it can possibly be. So even if it's a working title, I have that done. I have a theme, uh, and I got this from Stephen Pressfield, who I uh, and, and I'm glad that I misinterpreted what he said. But uh, I thought that he said he takes a yellow sticky and writes a one-word uh, theme that guides his writing. Uh, and I thought, oh, that's wonderful. So I wrote down "Revenge" for my first book, and then I changed that to uh, "Revenge Without Constraint" um, as I as I moved along, just to narrow it down a little further. Um, but what he actually was telling was a story about a playwright in New York who would have a few sentences that would guide his writing process. Uh, I don't know how I misinterpreted that, but I'm glad that I did because that theme of revenge uh, really kept things on track as I was writing that first novel, so much so that when it got eventually got to Simon & Schuster, I thought it was going to come back with all sorts of content edits, and really it came back with just about three. Uh, would he say this here? Would he do this here? And can you explain this a little more here? Um, but I think that's because I stayed on theme. So whether it was directly or more importantly, indirectly, 
tied to that theme of revenge without constraint. Um, every chapter, every paragraph, even every sentence somehow is tied in there. And then my second book, uh, True Believer, it was a uh, story of redemption. So redemption was what guided that uh, the writing there. Um, and then I changed that because I hadn't <laughs> talked to Stephen Pressfield yet about uh, me misinterpreting what he said. Um, so uh, violent redemption is what guided that book. Uh, my third one, Savage Son, explores the dark side of man through the dynamic of hunter and hunted. Uh, the fourth one, The Devil's Hand, was really all about looking at the United States through the eyes of the enemy. So through the eyes of, uh, say, China, Russia, Iran, North Korea, a super-empowered individual, uh, terrorist organization, what would they have learned by watching the United States on the field of battle for the last 20 years? Um, and what how, what lessons would they have taken and applied to their future battle plans. And then as I was writing that, COVID hits. So very natural for me to be looking at COVID through the eyes of the enemy. Uh, and they're just not looking at it with a passing interest. They're figuring out um, how they can exploit that, our reaction to COVID. Then a summer of civil unrest. So as I'm writing that, I'm looking at all of that through the eyes of the enemy. And that all made it into that that uh, that fourth novel. Um, the next one, In the Blood, a sniper-centric novel of violent, of, uh, of, uh, uh, of resolutions. And uh, for that one, I... I wanted to write a sniper-centric novel, but I didn't want it to end up being what I'd seen in movies before, read it in other books, which is typically two snipers on opposite hillsides in buildings looking for each other, and the last second they find each other at the same time, but the good guy fires first through the scope of the bad guy, and that's kind of typically how those go down. So I had to figure out how to write a sniper-centric novel without that scene in there. And um, I really liked uh, thinking that through and figuring that out, solving that problem creatively. And uh, what I came to was that sometimes it's not the best technical uh, practitioner of the art of long distance shooting that's going to end up on top. It's the one who outthinks his adversary. So uh, that was that was uh, a great time writing writing that book. And then this one is a novel of truth and consequences. So I've had these themes that uh, that have guided me through each of the novels and uh, and keep me on track. So I absolutely I think uh, for me anyway, everybody's gonna have a different way that they that they write. But um, for me, that's that's worked out quite quite well. Um, but uh, what I do, I have that title, I have that theme, and then I write a one-page executive summary. And my, my process has stayed the same for all the books thus far, and uh, not to say it won't change at some point in the future. But uh, I read that one-page executive summary, and then I ask myself, is this worth uh, the next year, year and a half of my life? And if the answer is yes, then I read it again, and I ask the question, if someone was walking through the airport, walks into Hudson News and opens this book or turns over the paperback and reads the back, um, are they going to uh, invest time in this story that they're never going to get back? And if the answer to that is yes or probably, then that's my story. And I turn that into the outline and then that into the narrative. Um, and that's uh, that's worked out up to this point and how I'm writing the, the seventh novel right now. So how do you want your reader to interact and respond to James Reese? He can be a violent guy. Mm. And he can be a caring guy. He can be all those things. How, throughout that, the series and those themes, how do you want us to react to him when he's doing what he's doing? Yeah, I don't think I have a. I don't think of it in those terms. How I want anyone to react. I'm not. 
I don't look at um, reviews other than to just kind of get a general feel, or sometimes I read the negative ones on my podcast just to turn a, a negative into a positive, meaning uh, I can read a review that says too violent, uh, too many descriptions of guns or too much gear, and someone else is like, oh my gosh, I'd love that type of novel. So I think the uh, the negative ones help uh, help help as, as well. But I don't come at it from the position of, hey, what do I want the reader to come away with? Because I think readers are going to come away with, with different things. Um, what I what I was very cognizant of in the beginning was that I wanted James Reese to be somebody that you would want to have a beer with, want to have a coffee with, um, and who could also then flip that switch and get the job done because he had the skill set to do it. And uh, I, I think I got that once again. Back to the 80s, growing up with Magnum, and uh, everybody loved Magnum P.I. in the 80s. Uh, the, the husbands loved him, wives loved him, probably for different reasons. But uh, he was funny, he could be goofy. Uh, he had these friends that, uh, that he wrote. We had Higgins. Vietnam. But then he had these episodes where he flipped that switch and got the job done. And uh, in one of those episodes, the first time in uh, network television history where a, uh, a good guy shoots unarmed bad guy. And uh, that's that's how they end one of these uh, episodes of Magnum P.I. And I remember watching that as a kid and just being completely enthralled with that story. Um, and I love the story arcs. I love the ones that uh, had connections to previous episodes. So you had to have watched it from the beginning to really understand what was going on. Um, so I love that. So I wanted James Reese to be somebody that had the skill set to get this job done. Uh, and then but it was also. Uh, a normal person in that uh, that you'd want to have a beer with this person. You want to hang out in the backyard and have a barbecue uh, with this person. So that's, uh, and that was just very, it ended up being a very natural protagonist for me to write. So would you, would you get something that's um, that you've written turned into a series like the terminalist? Does it change the way you write and does it, does it put any sort of pressure on you or do you feel any, any different? Uh, I'm always a sponge. I'm always learning. Uh, I was always a student of warfare. I'm a student of this craft. Um, and, but it has effect, impacted the last two books. So for people that have uh, that paid attention, read all the novels and watched the show, they'll be able to tell in the last two novels what I took from those and applied to this one and the previous one in the blood. Um, but it's, a, it's an interesting thing because uh, I was involved in every aspect of production, and I, that's because Chris Pratt and Antoine Fuqua wanted me involved from the get-go, so I got to be there, obviously, for optioning. Uh, and then they chose David DeGilio as the showrunner. Amazing guy. Put us in contact in December of 2019. We've talked every day since. Uh, and he really took me under his wing, mentored me along. I advised on that pilot script. Uh, then we put the writer's room together. I advised on all those scripts. Then we moved into production, uh, well, casting first, and then into production, and then into post-production, and then into marketing, and then into the follow-up, uh, and then negotiations for a second season and a spinoff. So I've got to be a part of all this, and now I'm writing a novel not now because it's pencils down on <laughs> because of the writer's strike, but um, writing the finale and then writing for the for True Believer, an episode on that, the finale as well. I believe, um, but uh, it has impacted because I'm a student, and uh, and I got some I've gotten some wonderful advice from David DeGilio. I'm certainly learning a ton on the screenwriting side because I have no background there because I'm not reading screenplays uh, growing up. Um, but a lot of those lessons I have uh, I brought over to the writing side. But I like that they're so different. I love that when I'm writing these, it's only me. 
My editor doesn't give me any advice. My agent doesn't give me any advice. I have 100% complete creative control. Never once has anyone at Simon & Schuster or my agent said, hey, if think about laying off on this a little bit, or you know what's, what's really selling right now is X, Y, or Z. There's never any of those conversations, and I love that because now I can't blame anybody. If this doesn't work out, if the, this, the, 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 this next book doesn't resonate for some reason, I can't blame anybody but myself. I can't say, gosh, my agent recommended I go this route and it didn't work. That's not even a part of the calculus because I have complete creative control. And you don't have to worry about budgets. You don't have to worry about set pieces. You can do anything you want in the pages of a thriller, in the pages of any any novel, uh, which is so fantastic. I love that. Now you go to screenwriting and you have to, okay, we're going to pick up 350 people and move them from state whatever it is to the other state or country X to country Y. Um, and we're going to need a, how much does it cost to have a, a train go off the track or you have to have a missile blow up or a plane go down or a fight on a, like these are big set pieces, uh, especially when it comes to edit, special effects and editing and everything else that goes into it. So that's part of the calculus, uh, not part of the calculus when you're writing. You can do anything you want in the pages of a novel, in screenwriting, but that's part of it also, is that you do have these constraints, um, which helps kind of sharpen your writing, if that makes sense, because you can't get into the character's mind. You have to do it with uh, an action or with a look from an actor. Um, so that's fascinating too, but so different from one another, but still under the umbrella of writing. And uh, and I think that uh, they complement one another. Now that I've done both, I see that they can be complementary and I can learn from both. And hopefully one makes me better at the other and I get better at both moving forward. That's always the goal is to do it better than I did it yesterday. Besides um, the change and the growth in your writing and what you learn, like with, you know, like you were saying from, from the sh- series and stuff and, and screenwriting and things, do you think or do you feel there's a certain change with each book you do within yourself? Probably because I'm growing as well. Uh, I'm getting older, uh, more experiences. The kids are getting older. Um, you're facing challenges with your with your family and dealing with the things that other families are dealing with, like social media and those kind of pressures and inputs that we didn't have as kids. So you're figuring out how to deal with all that. Um, so so I, I think, I hope I'm evolving. Um, and if I do a quick glance, uh, unscientific study of uh, reviews and feedback, that each book is getting better and better. Um, I feel that way too. I mean, you, I hope. I mean, you never know because this, uh, this is subjective and it's an art form. So it's kind of like you've worked on a statue for a year and a half or you've worked on a painting for a year and a half and you have it covered with a tarp and then you bring everybody in and you unveil this thing for the first time and... You never know. You could have gasps of horror when they see what you've uh, what you've created. So you never really know till you get it get it out there. But uh, the early reviews on this one uh, really made me feel made me feel good. Um, and for the and thus far anyway, um, general consensus is everything is getting better, which is which is what I want, uh, obviously. But um, I think when you do something, if you're if you love it and you're devoted to that craft and you're a student of it and you're learning and you're applying these lessons going forward, um, that uh, I mean, that's, uh, I guess that's a good formula. Um, and, but I carry this attitude, uh, throughout everything that I do is I, I want to be a better husband. I want to be a better father each and every day. Same thing with everything that I write when my, this sentence that I write next to be better than the sentence that I wrote uh, a few minutes before. So it's always about improving. And, uh, as, as I go through life and that's just, um, yeah, how I've carried myself in the military. I want to be the best leader I could be, best operator I could be, earn my trident every day, um, which is the insignia we wear 
in the SEAL teams, you want to earn that. Uh, I want to earn that uh, that trust and maintain that trust with my audience, with my readers, um, because I, I am so serious about uh, them investing their time with me and trusting me with that time that they're never going to get back. So it's a relationship that you have with your readers. And on social media, I love to be able to say thank you to people. I love to be able to say thank you for people who to people who took a risk on me as a new author and then told a friend or told a family member at dinner table or posted on social media to their five followers or their 20 followers or their 30 million followers and everything in between. So um, so I try to use that as a, as a way to say thank you. So it's, uh, it's all about that journey and all about constant improvement. Well, as a storyteller, what's it like to see your characters alive on a screen or hear their voices being interpreted by Ray Porter on Audible. What's it like for you? Yeah, well, Ray, I mean, I did not know much about the audio side because I've been a reader my whole life. I have a physical, uh, physical books. Those are my, that's my thing. Um, so when Simon and Schuster reached out before the first book came out and uh, said, hey, what do you think about this person as your narrator? And I listened to it and I was like, Oh, I don't know. Um, can I choose somebody else? And they wrote back and said, uh, yeah, just let us know by the end of the day. And it was like noon here in Utah. So uh, I had a couple hours. So I just went to Audible and started listening to all those uh, samples. And I found Ray Porter. And I found him through a nonfiction a book. And then I went to all the other ones that he'd done and started listening to those samples and said, oh, it's Ray Porter guy. I think he can do this. Uh, but I had no idea that he was kind of at the pinnacle of, uh, of the narration, world of narration. And so I wrote back to Simon and Schuster and said, how about Ray Porter? And uh, they said, well, we can ask him. And they did. And he said, yes. And now we're great friends. And the first book was up for uh, audio book of the year. And we went to New York and put on the tuxes and had some drinks together. And it was up there next to Ruth Ware and Stephen King. And so for me as a brand new author, that was amazing. And uh, Ruth Ware won that, that year. But uh, that was that was incredible. And uh, I didn't realize that people follow narrators from project to project, just like you'd follow if you didn't listen to books and read them, you'd follow an, an author. So I didn't really realize that. So I got very fortunate with that, uh, with Thinking Ray. Um, and then uh, for seeing the characters on the screen. So when I sat down to start writing this book in December of 2014, I think that's when I wrote the first first word. So I'm still in the military, but I'm not taking guys downrange anymore. So it's time for me to get out and uh, have some time to uh, have some time on my hands. Because when you get out of this gigantic bureaucracy called the military, uh, it takes a little time. You have to go get read out of secret programs and go to medical and dental and do all these things. So you have a little little time. So I started writing. And as a child of the 80s, of course, it makes sense to choose the actor you want to portray your main character. So I sat down to write and decided Chris Pratt would play James Reese. And uh, he hadn't risen to A-list stardom yet. He was in Parks and Rec on NBC, uh, so a sitcom where he's kind of overweight and jovial and likable. And then he played a SEAL operator in Zero Dark Thirty, and he got in shape. And uh, so I saw that transition, and I thought, you know what, this guy could pull this off. He probably needs to do something like this as I look at his career. Um, and he seems inherently likable on and off screen. So I thought Chris Pratt will play my main role. And since I'm picking my, my, uh, my actor, I might as well pick my director. So I thought, you know what, this sound, this feels like a perfect, uh, book 
for Antoine Fuqua. And I love what Antoine has done uh, with, the, with Point of Impact. He turned that into Shooter. Um, uh, of course, Training Day, Tears of the Sun. Uh, just such a great guy. Now we're friends, and he is just a, a creative genius and such a good person as well. Um, and so I chose both those guys, and then I thought, well, uh, Emily Besser will be my, my publisher because I looked in the back of Brad Thor's books and Vince Flynn's books, and they're both thanking somebody named Emily Bessler. So I picked her as well. Of course, none of these people know I exist then. Um, and then the way it all came came together with all of those people involved in this project and Chris Pratt bringing my character to life um, is a little bit crazy. But uh, but he's the one that I wanted to see do this, and he ended up doing it. Um, but I also knew that the story was going to change because I had read so many books growing up and had seen so many books adapted to television or to film. And so I noted the changes and what I liked and what I didn't. And I went back to David Morrell's 1972 debut, First Blood, very different than the Sylvester Stallone film in the early 80s, but both fantastic. Um, so I knew there would be changes. And I got to talk to the showrunner about that very early on, my understanding that, of course, there are going to be changes. We're telling a story through a visual medium right now. So, um, But to see it brought to life, I could not be more more thrilled. Uh, and even if we just did the one season, I'd still be completely thrilled. Uh, we happen to be doing a spinoff and a second season, and then um, we'll see where it goes from there. But, uh, yeah, to see it brought to life in the way that we did and to keep stay true to the spirit of the novel, which was what was important to, to Antoine and to Chris and to the showrunner and to me, um, I loved that they were so serious about that and how much they wanted to write this show and uh, produce this show in a way that was thoughtful and that honored those people who went down to range to Iraq and Afghanistan over the last 20 years. So that that person could sit on the couch, open a beer, put their foot up, feet up on the couch, on the coffee table, and at least know that we've made our best effort to explore the mind of a modern day warrior in, uh, in a way that paid tribute to that person who is home sitting on the couch watching this show. So um, I think we have, we accomplished that and, and we never didn't make it for critics or for, or for Hollywood. We made it for that, uh, that person who went down range. And uh, of course there's some Hollywood hot sauce in there. there. There has to be a little Hollywood hot sauce in there, but uh, to move the story forward. But if we can stay anchored in the spirit and anchored in uh, the authentic nature of a modern warrior's mindset, then, uh, then that's a success. Are you conscious of the violence or the sex that you write on the page? I mean, I'm conscious of it because I'm writing it, but uh, you mean the impact? Yeah, but no, or you, do you think about it? Yeah, do you, do you think about how you're going to, about how violent or how sexual and, and those kind of natures that you write, and has it changed? Uh, no, I think about it, um, but I don't overthink it. Um, and, you know, this is a story, but I don't want to, you know, I'm not going to play that cop-out card where I say, oh, I, I just want to write it because so people realize how horrible it is. Um, no, there are vehicles for moving the story forward. Um, so I embrace it. Um, and having experienced, you know, violence downrange and uh, violence is a very natural part of the human condition. Um, it shouldn't come as a shock, really, to anyone if they're worried about that. There are plenty of other other books out there to read. But, um, yeah, I don't think about it in terms because I want this just to stay true to the story. And uh, and so I don't think of it in terms of, well, I shouldn't write this because of X, Y, or Z, or, um, you know, how is this going to play to this audience or this readership? Or I could be alienating somebody with this. 
So now I just want to make the best story that I possibly can. And however I, I do that is, is how it comes out. So I want to stay true to the story and uh, not be, uh, I guess, manipulated by how someone might take it or how society might take it. It's it's all about the art form. And, um, and uh, yeah, I make no apologies. For well, you have a great hero. How about the bad guys? How do you interact or feel or deal with the bad guys for yourself? Yeah, that's really fun. Um, because bad guys are usually new, not all the time, some continue, but uh, a lot of times they're new, so you don't know them yet. You know your returning characters, you know your protagonist, of course, you know your supporting cast. Um, they're developing and they're growing, but you generally know them. But uh, if you have a host, a new bad guys, new antagonists uh, for the for the story, then you need to get to know them somehow. So as I start out, I'll have a list of names also. So I'll have uh, you know I'll have the people that uh, that I know, just so I don't have to go back and look at a speller names or whatever else. And so I'll have the returning ones, and then I'll have the new characters in there. And I also I do that so that I can say, oh, this Russian last name sounds a little too much like uh, this other Russian last name. How do I differentiate those? And for people who have written a lot of Russian characters, that's that's a pretty difficult, actually, uh, to have a different ending to a Russian Russian last name uh, if you have multiple characters. So I write those out so I can, oh, this letter is the same as this one, or this ending sounds, this is going to be confusing. So I do that, but I'll have the name. So once I figure that out, I'll have the name, and then I'll have their position, like uh, uh, the head of Russian intelligence or head of the Russian mafia or whatever it might be. Um, but I don't know them yet. And I don't get to know them until I start writing them and I get to know them through dialogue, through their interaction with other characters. I can have a little bit of background maybe uh, on there, but I don't know them. And when I start writing the dialogue, that's when I really get to know, especially those bad guys, because usually they're the <laughs> James Reese takes care of them in a previous novel. And now I have some new new bad guys that need to be dealt with. But uh, but I get to know them through that dialogue. And for me, that is a very fun um, because it's new and, uh, and you're having these people go back and forth. And I don't know if uh, their conversation is going to take a page, two pages, three pages, 10 pages, because it's a conversation, and uh, and that's the way I get to know them. So for me, that is uh, that's a lot of fun writing those bad guys. Well, that's fantastic. So listen, uh, this is a silly question, but uh, I was going to say, how do people find you? Like website and uh, social media and all that. But I'm sure people already have a lot of that. But let's give out give it out just to make sure. Yeah, officialjackcar.com. That's my. Uh, uh, website and there's a there's a merch section in the upper right hand corner. There's a blog that I try to uh, update uh, fairly regularly with uh, reading lists and things like that. Uh, just keep people updated. Uh, there's a newsletter uh, people can sign up for. I have a podcast called Danger Close. That's on Apple Spot, Apple Podcast, Spotify, and on my YouTube channel, the Jack Carr YouTube channel. Uh, then on social media, I'm at Jack Carr USA. And I have a Facebook, but um, I think it just reposts from Instagram. But because three social media platforms was too much, two is almost too much. Uh, so Instagram and Twitter at Jack Carr USA, but that's where I engage with people and uh, try to thank as many people as I possibly can. Uh, at the end of the day, so I'm trying to, as my wife's asleep and and uh, it's the last second, trying to go through and just hit that heart button and say thank you uh, to people who have uh, have enjoyed the novels and, and told a friend. So, uh, and through those social media channel, uh, platforms, I try to to add value to uh to people's lives so whether it's with a post about history uh, about an author who influenced me and their background and what they've written 
um, and, 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 and uh, event in history, typically something in the, in the terrorism type of a, a realm that impacted me growing up, whether it was the 1983 Bayer Barracks bombing, 1979 Iranian hostage crisis, TWA 847, Achilles Laurel, Pan M103, uh, host of attacks in Europe during the 80s in nightclubs and cafes. Um, I try to uh, write about those in a thoughtful way uh, so that people don't forget. Um, so I do that as well and just uh, try to interact and, and say thank you. So that's uh, so I'm out there and uh, I really appreciate everybody that takes the time to uh, to engage. Well, we appreciate you being on the show. We'll have all of that up on our site as well. So, um, of course, the new book, Only the Dead, a thriller, and it's Terminal List Book 6. So thank you for being here, Mr. Jack Carr. Uh, thank you so much for having me. It's, uh, I love talking about books and reading, as you can tell. Can't tell. Can't tell at all. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Yeah. Good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back. You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to www.houseofmystery.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Yeah. Good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.